the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Now, as we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, we saw chapter 6 was sort of an outline of a seven-year tribulation period. And then we've now looked at chapters that have sort of said, okay, let's fill in the gaps of what takes place within those seven years. And we come to chapter 11, in particular, looking at the first three and a half year period. And it lets us know right up front in the first two verses, something rather unusual. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles. They will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So that leave it out or give it over. Those are heavy words of just throw it away, cast it off, empty it out, expel it. It's a a harsh word saying we don't get a rip about it. Uh, Again, we don't see the Jew. We don't see the Christian here. We see Jews, and we see Gentiles. In the Hebrew, the word Gentile is the same word nations, is the same word heathen. And so it's basically saying the heathens got it. Let them have it, but do measure the inner temple. Now, most of the book of Revelation is repeated in other parts of the Bible. So almost everything that happens. So if John's told to measure the temple, you can be for sure Somebody else earlier had the same exact experience and was told to measure it. And you go back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40, 43. Uh, Ezekiel there is measuring a temple, but it's the millennial temple. But this temple we have here is we're going to discover it's in the tribulation period. Now, this is astounding when you understand how where we're at in the time period of this planet. You know, we we're here today talking about, oh, yeah, Israel's a nation. Guys, Just 1948, before that, they weren't a nation. They hadn't been for thousands of years. And so it's an amazing thing when we talk about Israel being a nation again. It's always fun to go back and look at the commentaries before 1948. They're trying to spiritualize it, a spiritual Israel, or replace it with the church, or all these other things, because Israel becoming a nation again, it just fried their brain. But then Israel became a nation And then it wasn't until 1967 that Jerusalem became their capital. And so we're just like, whoa, you know, uh, Jerusalem being the capital, how could such a thing be? Uh, The Jordanians possessed it, and it was just a hotbed because the Muslims possessed uh, their third most holy site, uh, the temple of uh, Omar there and, and so forth. How could such a thing happen? Well, here we are after the fact. I mean, 1967, that was a couple of years ago, right? Um, Time flies, but you guys who are my age, it seems like yesterday. 1967, less than 40 years ago, Jerusalem was not under the control of the Jews. And now to think that it's not only that, but it's the Jewish capital again. And now here we are, and we're saying the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem, is possessed by the uh, Muslims. They have it there. What they teach is that Muhammad came to Jerusalem, and from that mount he ascended into heaven. They have this rock there in the middle of the temple, and they say you can see his footprint there, and and, uh, you can go and pay some money, go in there and look. I've never wanted to do that. I've gone up to the temple in my area, had no desire to go in the temple. Uh, 
on the outside of the, that, that temple, it says, God is neither begotten nor does he beget. Just a blasphemous statement against John 3.16. But uh, the Muslims, they have that whole Temple Mount area, and they believe they built the temple right where the Jewish temple once stood. Of course, they'll never agree to that, uh, because they don't even want to believe that a Jewish temple ever existed there. But the Muslims have always possessed Jerusalem. The Jews never possessed it, not even the past. And so they try to rewrite history and so forth. But uh, nevertheless, it tells us, John, in the tribulation period, there's a temple there. And you can go and measure it. Now, don't measure the outer courts, which was most of the grounds, because it's insignificant. The heathen have it. It doesn't even matter to what's going to be happening in the tribulation period. And so remember, when John is writing this, the book of Revelation was written around 90, 92 A.D., about 20 years after the temple was destroyed. So at this moment, there's no temple when John's writing this. So the very first temple was built by Solomon back around uh, 1050. And that lasted up until 605 B.C., and the Babylonians completely destroyed it. Then 70 years later, Zerubbabel comes and builds a very shabby temple. The older people wept when they saw it, saying this is a disgrace compared to Solomon's temple. Of course, Solomon's temple, the way they built that thing, is one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was sort of like that. They sort of remodeled it and built it through the years. And then in 20 AD, Herod, remember the guy who tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem when he was a baby? He was half Jewish, and he, so somehow he got in this thing. He wanted to build the grandest of temples, and he really did. He started remodeling this thing. So some say there's three temples. There's Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, and Herod's temple. But really, Herod's temple is sort of a remodel of Zerubbabel's temple, uh, which basically started back over. Sort of depends how you look at it. But he built this thing. Remember in Matthew 24, the disciples said, Jesus, look at these stones. Aren't they magnificent? So it was, it was a pretty elaborate building. But in 70 AD, the Romans came in, put Jerusalem under siege, and then they completely destroyed the temple, and it's been destroyed since then for about 2,000 years. So now all of a sudden he's saying there's going to be a temple. Now here we are saying, how could the Jews have a temple there with the third most holy site of the, the Muslims, which make up about a fifth of the world's population. They say there's about a billion Muslims in the world. And believe me, if anything was messed with their third most holy site, you would have an entire third world war for sure. Well, it gives us an indicator here in verse 2. It says they will tread down the holy city, the Gentiles, for 42 months, which is three and a half years. So what it appears, and this is speculation on my part, as we get closer and closer, the light will dawn in the dark place, it says in Peter, and we'll see more clearly. But the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, who's possessed by Satan, is going to be an incredible political figure. Matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 5 says, when everybody's saying, peace, peace, in other words, he comes on the scene, he makes this world peace that he's going to be able to maneuver and bring things about that's going to blow people's mind. But evidently, from what we can see here, it appears as if somehow he gives the Gentiles the city of Jerusalem, which is what they want today. The Palestinians won't even discuss a peace plan without them possessing all of Jerusalem. And the Jews are out. And of course, the Jews aren't going to go for that. But somehow this happens. And so somehow they 
end up getting control of it. But they are allowed, the Jews are allowed to have a portion of the Temple Mount area. Now it's interesting because in 1983, a physicist in Israel by the name of Asher Kaufman was reading some of the Mishnah. The Mishnah are the the writings, the commentaries of the Jews, but they hold them in almost as high as state as the Bible itself. And uh, he was reading, and he came across uh, a passage in the Mishnah of Yoma 5.2. And in Yoma 5.2, it says, As the priest stood in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, we're actually going to discuss that tonight. Uh, that's what we're teaching on tonight in Leviticus chapter 16, which is the, the holy day. If he was to look, he was to open stand in the middle of the veil, the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies. If that curtain was to open and he's standing in front of the Ark of the Covenant from the temple, he could look through the eastern gate and straight ahead and it lined up perfectly with Mount Scopus. Now, archaeologists have looked at it and that where the eastern gate sets today is the same place it's always set. But if you look at where the Dome of the Rock or the Temple of Omar is built, it's about 100 meters south of the east gate or the east gate is 100 meters north of the, the temple. So if you go up to the Temple Mount area and when we go to Israel, we do this. You walk over about 100 meters from the temple, walking north, and you go, and there is this gazebo. And the the Muslims call it the Dome of the Tablets, or the Dome of the Spirits. You ask them why, they don't know. That's what they've always called it. What was in the Ark of the Covenant, guys? (laughs) The tablets. And uh, that's the Spirit of God was present there. But if you go look, underneath that gazebo is a giant bedrock. One giant, huge rock. And if you stand on that rock and you look east, you are lined up perfectly with the east gate and Mount Scopus. And so Asher Kaufman said, I believe that is where the Holy of Holies set. Because if you look at the rock that's in the Temple of Omar, it's sort of a rounded, rugged-shaped rock. How would the ark set on that? But this other bedrock is perfectly flat. And so it's a very convincing argument that very possibly you could go a few meters over from the Temple of Omar and you could build a wall And it would separate the holy from the profane, as it says in Ezekiel 42, verse 20. And it says that they are separated from one another, and then the temple could be built there. Now, you've got to understand, for the most part, Jews could care less about religion. The highest population of atheists in any people group on this planet are amongst the Jews. They say, if God allowed the Holocaust, why should we believe in him? There is no God. He wouldn't allow that to happen. And so many of them are atheists. And those who aren't atheists are rather apathetic. Now, I'm not to take away from a one, lot of wonderful Jewish people. And God has commanded us to love them. And they are his people. And I'm not trying to badmouth them. I'm just stating the facts. That they could care less if there's a temple. <laughs> that's, why they gave the whole, that's why they gave the temple site to the Muslims. Have it. We don't care. 
But now there's going to be a change, a turn of events. Interesting. This week, in the news, this week, in the news, it says there's a reestablishment of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling class of the religious Jews. And they came in this week onto the Temple Mount area. Guys, you've got to understand that. The Muslims never allow that. That's a sign of war. They don't let the Jews go there. Imagine in your own country, you couldn't go places because a religious sect wouldn't let you. Well, the, all the Gentiles in the world, they'll let up on the Temple Mount area. The Muslims will, but they won't let any Jews, period. Even if you're an atheistic Jew, they don't want you up on the Temple Mount area. But here these guys rush onto the Temple Mount area this last Monday, December 6th, claiming this is the Jewish holy site. And they, as they do every year... <laughs> They drag a big giant stone and they say, this is the first stone we're building our temple. There's a big ruckus and uh, things calm down and it goes on. But this is interesting that this group, now they're in Jerusalem. One of the places we go is into the store called the Temple Institute. And you go in and it is a fanatical Jewish sect who believes that they are going to build a temple And guess how they're going to know who the Messiah is? He's going to help them build the temple, which is the very thing we believe the Antichrist is going to be doing. And they have been building all of the various vessels that Jews have to have in order to perform the sacrifices in the temple. They have a group of people that have Kohathites they've been training. They worked for over a decade, uh, an extinct cow, a red heifer, went extinct. There was no more red heifers. They've actually breeded and crossbreeded until they have a red heifer now. Uh, It's in Montana, and uh, they've been able to work and get that so they can get the ashes of it. And uh, the last time I was there a few years back, they were trying to raise $14 million for the menorah, which is solid gold. I've heard since then that they've actually raised that much money, and they have this huge golden uh, menorah now built. They claim they have everything ready. They claim they know exactly where the ark is underneath Uh, behind the welling wall there. There's a tunnel that we go through called the Tunnel of the Rabbis. And you go in and they have these various things they're tunneling underneath. And the Muslims are up on top listening to where they're tunneling. And then they dig a hole and they dump cement down. And there's this little war they have going on. But uh, they claim they know exactly where that ark is. And so uh, these guys are quite fanatical. And they say they are ready. If the temple were built tomorrow, they are ready to start doing sacrifices. So we see some really interesting things uh, getting set here. Now, when we look at this temple, we actually have a few pieces of information in the Bible about it. One of these pieces of information is in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And actually, you've got to study the whole chapter. I'm not going to do that, but my teaching's on the website, or you can get the tape or the CD um, and, and listen to it uh, in much more detail But there in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says this. He, referring to the Antichrist, this uh, prince who is to come, um, this man of lawlessness, this beast, whatever you want to call him, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, in the English, it's translated one week. In the Hebrew, it literally means one group of seven. And as you study Daniel chapter 9, the one group of seven is talking about seven years. So he made a covenant with Israel for a seven-year period saying, let's give this thing a try. Give Jerusalem to the Gentiles. Let's build you a temple. We got this seven-year thing. But in the middle of that week, there in Daniel 9.27, in the middle of that, three and a half years into it, 
He shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offering. So he's going to stop the Jewish sacrifices. And on the wing of the abomination shall one who makes desolate. Now this is referring back to an earlier passage in Daniel when it gives a description of this guy who was one of the leaders. Uh, when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was put, the Greek Empire was put under four generals. And they were, the whole world that he had conquered was broken down into section. And the one section that was given to uh, basically the Syrians, the Seleucus Empire, after over 100 years, this one guy got raised up by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus was this crazy guy who believed himself to be God. And not to go into too much detail here, anyway, him and the Jews didn't get along. And eventually he came down and he slaughtered a pig on the Jewish altar went into the Holy of Holies and put up a statue to Jupiter there and then created his own religion using some of the Jewish teachings, using some heathen teachings, made up some stuff and for a period of several decades had his own religion there in the Jewish temple. And that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You had this group, this family called the Maccabees who put together these guerrilla warfare tactics and eventually drove the, drove the Seleucus out of uh, Israel, and then they reestablished the temple. And in consecrating it, they set the menorah back up, but they didn't have enough oil to make it burn because it took seven days to consecrate the oil to be used. The oil was to be put in the menorah, the menorah was never to go out. But by faith, they just went ahead and put the oil in it, although it wasn't going to last very long. I just say, when it burns out, it burns out. But supernaturally, the menorah kept burning, even though there wasn't very much oil. Until the eighth day, then they had enough oil, and they poured it in the menorah and kept it going. And that is the Jewish holiday of what? Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. And that's why the, the Hanukkah candle has eight um, veins coming up rather than seven, symbolizing that eighth day, that eighth day they had the oil to, uh, to go. So again, there's a lot of details on this, and I don't want to overwhelm you with too much, but not that you couldn't handle it. I didn't mean that. Um, but uh, the fact is, is that um, this guy Antiochus was a picture of the Antichrist. And when he slaughtered the pig on the altar, he did the abomination of desolation. Now, ultimately... The Antichrist is not going to come and put Jupiter in the Holy of Holies. He's going to take himself into the Holy of Holies. And he's going to do something far worse than slaughtering a pig and putting up Jupiter. Uh, he tells us this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says this concerning the same scenario in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that's called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24 and said this, Therefore, in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, 
Whoever reads, let him understand. You've got to know the book of Daniel. Understand this, he says. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he goes on saying, get out of Jerusalem. Because when the Antichrist sets himself in the temple and says, I'm God. The Jews' eyes are open worldwide and they reject him. They thought he was the Messiah. This is the guy. This is the guy. They're worshiping and praising him. They're accepting him. And at that moment, they realize those 144,000 uh, Jewish prophets have been in the world prophesying the two witnesses we're going to see about in a minute who've been saying this guy's the Antichrist. He really is. And they're going to reject him. And the Antichrist at that point is going to start a new holocaust, slaughtering all the Jews he can, even supernaturally. One of the prophets says a water comes out of his mouth like a giant flood. And then God opens up the earth and causes the water to go down to let him flee over to Petra, to the rock city there in Jordan to this day, to hide out for the last three and a half year period of the millennial or of the tribulation period. And so the temple is a, a radical thing. So again, when you're looking at the, the commentaries, you're like saying, well, Israel really can't become a nation again, and they really can't have Jerusalem as their capital. That'll never happen. You can't really have a temple. And they try to spiritualize all these things. But in reality, this is the very thing that happens. And you can't have an end times without Israel being a nation. They are. You can't have the end times unless the Jews have Jerusalem. And they do. And you can't have the end times without the temple at least being built in the tribulation period, if not beforehand. And we are right there on the verge of it. Right now, the the stage is set. The players are in place. All we got to do is pull back the curtain. And uh, we are ready for things to to go in that tribulation period. And of course, for us, um, we're going to be raptured out of here. And so going back here to Revelation chapter 11, we're going to see another scenario now <clears throat> during starting the marking of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years. He says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, which is the clothing of mourning, of sorrow, And in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must kill, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So it appears that right at the beginning of the tribulation period, all of a sudden, these two witnesses are there. Now, who are these two witnesses? One of them, absolutely for certain, is Elijah. The guy who lived in the Old Testament, this mighty prophet who was taken up in a fiery chariot. How do we know that? In the book of Malachi, chapter 4, it plainly tells us that. In verse 5 and 6, it says this, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah is going to come. Then he says, interesting, the next thing, verse 6 says, turning the hearts of the fathers to the kids, the kids to the fathers. That verse is quoted concerning John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, that he was coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
which brings a question up. In Matthew 17, you have the Mount of Transfiguration, and who appears with Jesus there? Elijah and Moses. Which makes the disciples ask the question as they're coming down off the hill, hey, Elijah was supposed to come. And Jesus says, yeah, before the great and terrible day. And then he says this in verse 11 of Matthew 17. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I also say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. When you look at the Old Testament, there's often what's called a dual fulfillment. There's an immediate fulfillment, and then there's a future fulfillment. For example, Moses says at the end of his life, there's another prophet who's going to be raised up after me. Well, in the immediate, that was Joshua. And he did indeed lead them into the promised land. But when we come to the book of Acts, that verse is quoted, and this time it's referred to Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate Joshua who's going to lead us into the ultimate promised land. And so with this, you have a dual fulfillment. You had the first Elijah who came. It was actually the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is John the Baptist. But then he says plainly, hey, what it says is what it says. Elijah is going to come, as it says there in Malachi, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So he's for sure one of these witnesses. Now, who is the other witness? Some think it might be Enoch. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says it's appointed every man to die once and then judgment. Enoch, it says, there at the beginning of Genesis, he walked with God and he was not. And Jude tells us he was a prophet. So with that, some say, well, he didn't die. And the other guy that didn't die was Elijah. So they're going to come back and have their opportunity to die, as we're going to see here in a minute. But when you think about it, not everybody dies once. Those that God raised from the dead in the Old and New Testament, they died twice. <laughs> and then they stood before God. And then 1 Corinthians 15 says, here's a mystery. Not all of us are going to die. But in a moment, twinkling eye at the rapture of the church, millions, hopefully hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people will never die, but just be raptured into heaven. So what's Hebrew 9.27 saying? It's saying 99.999% of the people are going to die and stand before God Basically, he's saying all of us have one chance at this. There is no purgatory. There isn't reincarnation. There isn't a second, third, and fourth chance to get it right. You have one chance to get it right, and then you're going to stand before God and give an account of what you did in your body, so you better take this life seriously. This isn't a dress rehearsal. This is it. Now, as we look at these plagues, the first two miracles were the ones that Elijah did. Remember, He brought fire out and consumed people. Remember there in 2 Kings chapter 1. um, A group of soldiers come out to to Elijah and say, Hey, the king wants to talk to you, O man of God. And he goes, Oh, a man of God, am I? If I'm a man of God, let fire come out of head and consume you. (laughs) They all died. Another group of 50 came out and said, Hey, O man of God, the king wants to talk to you. If I'm a man of God, let fire come out of heaven and consume you. (laughs) They all came out. The commander with another 50 guys come out and goes, oh, Elijah, I'm a family man. I got kids at home and I beg you, please. And he says, okay, what do you want? Well, would you come with me? Sure, I'll go with you. And he goes with him. But then also what did Elijah do when he saw the idolatrous state 
his country had fallen into, he cried out to God and said, stop the rains. And the rain stopped for how long? Three and a half years, which is the same period of time. Now, it says that these two witnesses had a ministry for 1260 days. Now, if you figure that up, that doesn't make three and a half years in our calendar. But again, you say, where is 1260 days mentioned in times before the book of Daniel? Why he was in Babylon using the Babylonian calendar. And with the Babylonian calendar, that comes out to a three and a half year period in their calendar. We today have a 365 and a quarter day year. And in all our science and and intelligence, then we have a leap year and get caught back up. So, you know, ours isn't so sophisticated either because we say, well, every four years we're going to have a leap year because we're so scientific. Uh, Doesn't it's not too brilliant either. But one of the things the Antichrist is going to do, it tells in the book of Daniel, is he's going to change the times and the seasons. Why? It's 2004 right now. Why? Because 2004 years ago, Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth. Most of the presidents throughout our history, they don't write the year. They write it out on longhand. They'll say 1,000, it's like if it was 1997, they'd say 1,997 years of our Lord. That's when they do it officially. Ronald Reagan, he used to say 1,997 years of our Lord Jesus Christ. And George Bush Sr., I know, did that, and I probably Jr. does that as well. Uh, President Jr., that is. And uh, so when the Antichrist comes on the scene, believe me, he's not going to want that kind of remembrance of Jesus Christ. So he's going to change the calendar anyway. So basically saying, hey, to give you a footed, let's stay with the Bible prophecies. And so as you look in the book of Daniel, that 1260 days represents three and a half years. And so you can know and count it up that way. Now, as we look at the other miracles here, they're the ones that Moses did. When we're trying to figure out who the second witness is, who, who is this? It's the ones Moses did, turning the water to blood and the various plagues. And so remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, these two guys appeared together. So they're sort of already a president of Moses and Elijah uh, showing up together. So many believe it is Moses. Now, this is an interesting verse in verse four, talking about these two guys. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. You say, what in the world does that mean? Hey, guys, the book of Revelation is sort of the final exam, whether you really have read your Bible or not. If you haven't studied the 65 books before this, there's a lot of things like this you won't catch. This is a direct quote out of Zechariah chapter 4. And in Zechariah chapter 4, there is this vision, and there's these olive trees, and coming out of these olive trees are these pipes, and these pipes are going right into the menorah, and the oil's coming right from the olive tree right into the menorah. In other words, there's no man in between taking the olives, crushing them, making the oil, and then pouring it in. But it's coming directly. These heavenly olive trees are just piped right in. No mediator with man in the middle. Just coming right into the olive. Or coming right into the menorah. And in Zechariah, he asks, what is this? And in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, he says this. 
What are these two olive trees on the right of the lamp stand and on its left? And I answered a second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden, referring to the oil, from themselves? So that he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? So he asked this angel twice, What is this? And I said, He said, You don't know what this is? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. So he said plainly, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord and eventually are going to stand before the Lord and the whole earth. And so, in other words, these two witnesses are divinely energized, divinely anointed, straight from God. They're not like all the other earthly men. So these two witnesses aren't necessarily born into the world and and, and this way. They're just coming right out of heaven. And so this Moses and Elijah, like later we're going to ascend with the Lord back to this earth. They just come right to the earth. And maybe this is inferring. They don't need to eat. They don't have to drink. They don't have to sleep. They don't have to go to the bathroom. They're just these guys 24 hours a day, seven days a week that are just ministering for those three and a half years. Now what I think is taking place here is that these guys, the temple is built and these guys come as guardians of that temple by the Lord, making sure the Antichrist doesn't go in and proclaim himself to be God until the time. And for three and a half years, these guys are ministering there, prophesying. The world around them is becoming incredibly wicked. The Christians are gone. We've been raptured to be with the Lord. 144,000 Jews are out witnessing and people are getting saved. And these guys are standing in the gap. They're in Jerusalem preaching and teaching, causing plagues, doing miracles. And they're indestructible. They can't die. If somebody tries to, to, to kill them with a sniper or a hand grenade or whatever, they won't die. And a fire comes out of their mouth and, and they die. And they just continue for this time. But notice in verse, 20, or verse, verse 7 here now of Revelation 11, notice what takes place. When they finish their testimony, their ministry time is done. That 1,260 days is over. The beast. This is the first time of 42 times in the book of Revelation. He's called the beast. The Antichrist. The man of losses. This person who Satan has possessed. This beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now remember up to this point, they're indestructible. Think about it, guys. Satan reads the Bible. Matter of fact, more than once in the scriptures, we find him quoting the scriptures. So this man of lawlessness knows these guys are indestructible for 1,260 days. And he probably had his assistant say, hey, they started their ministry, mark it, tell me when 1,260 days are up. He comes into Jerusalem and he gets up and says, hey, you guys aren't from God. And I'm telling you that this is the truth or whatever. And then he calls fire out of heaven or does something extraordinary and kills these guys. And notice then in verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So we know what city where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem. But it's called Sodom. Now, as you study the Old Testament, more than once Jerusalem was called Sodom because of their immorality. Sodom 
was destroyed because of their immorality, in particular, their homosexuality. Again, in the news this week, on December 9th, this article came out. And this was the title of the article. Israel recognizes homosexual couples. Jewish state risks becoming the next Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) That's the title. And then it goes in uh, to elaborate detail, but Aaron Klein, the the writer of this, says, same-sex couples in Israel will have the same will now have many of the same rights as heterosexual spouses according to the decision today by the Jewish state's attorney general, which drew fire from many rabbis who warned Israel's risk becoming another Sodom and Gomorrah. And the article is quite lengthy, but I'll stop there. They made a law saying the homosexual couples can have the same right. About a year and a half ago, there in Tel Aviv, they had a, great, a gay pride parade, and it was the largest to date anywhere in the world. Tens of thousands of people showed up. I find it interesting that Israel is going to become a place in immorality, Sodom, Egypt, representing idolatry. It's going to become an idolatrous and immoral place permeated from what we can see here with homosexuality, which this week in the news, (laughs) they stepped up saying, hey, with that kind of law, Mr. Attorney General, we're going to become the next Sodom. And that's exactly what the scripture says they're going to be spiritually. Sodom and Egypt, immorality and and idolatry. But they lie there in verse 9, and those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the grave. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, making merry and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The only time we find rejoicing in this seven-year tribulation period is right here, rejoicing over God's witnesses being dead. Now, this is another interesting verse, verse 9, because it says all the peoples of the world, of every nation, of every tongue, of every tribe, is going to be able to see this going on. So it's funny, again, to go back and read commentaries even 30 years ago. I mean, we've got satellite TV now. We've got media coverage even in the last 10 years like we never had before. Even in the last five years. You know, now in Israel, you, you can go on the Internet and it's called the Temple Cam. They have a continuous cameras on the Welling Wall right now. And uh, so right now, live, you're looking at the Welling Wall. That's right there. And they have companies, people that make a living, you can email them or fax them a prayer request. And they'll actually write out your prayer request. And they'll tell you to look for them. And you can actually watch somebody in the next few minutes take your prayer request and put it in the Welling Wall and pray for your prayer request. You can actually see it live. Well, probably they're going to have several of these types of temple cams. And people are going to be watching these guys. You know, "Ah, what are the two witnesses are doing today? Whoa, just fried another guy, you know. Um, And they're going to be watching this. And then when these guys are killed, they're going to be looking at their dead bodies going, ah, let's take a look at those dead guys again, you know. And they're going to be watching this. Now, remember in the first three and a half years, there's a lot of destruction going on in the world. Millions and millions of people dying. There's no way they can keep them all buried. So they're, at this point, 
three and a half years into it, they're probably pretty used to uh, seeing dead bodies laying around. But nevertheless, they're watching this. So imagine this Antichrist, again, exactly three and a half years to the date. He comes up, takes on these two guys that nobody can kill, kills them. No doubt, walks right past them, into the temple, stops all of the sacrifices going on, walks in and says, I'm God. What does most of the world do? They begin to rejoice, celebrate. It becomes the new Christmas, if you would. Because again, he changes all the times and the seasons. He no doubt ended Christmas. And so now here's the new Christmas time they're going to reestablish, or they're going to establish concerning these guys that are dead. Um, Doesn't sound like a very good celebration, like an alternative Halloween or something. I don't know. But uh, that's going to be their celebration. But notice what happens here in verse 11. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. These guys raised from the dead. And they heard a loud voice come from heaven saying, Come up here. Sorry, didn't mean to wake some of you guys up. Go back to sleep. Shh, shh, be quiet. Okay, let's do it softer. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. So imagine this. The whole world here is looking on, seeing these dead bodies. All of a sudden, three and a half days later, they raise from the dead. And the whole world's looking at this. And then the whole world, no matter where you're at, hears the voice, come up here. And then they're all watching why these guys are ascending up into heaven. You know, people often say, how could anybody not be a believer seeing all of these things? Think about it, guys. They're going to see so many miracles before these miracles and not going to become believers. Remember Pharaoh back in Egypt? He saw a year's worth of miracles and he just hardened his heart more and more and more. The Pharisees, here they are, all these priests in Jerusalem and all these lepers for the first time ever start getting healed. Showing up. Not a couple, several, 1.7 at one time get healed. Here some guy comes to Jerusalem. I'm healed from leprosy. You know, give me the right of the cleansing of the leper of Leviticus 13 and 14. They're like, ah, get in line over there. Get behind, you know. There's this whole line of lepers that have been cleansed. The priests didn't become believers. And then Lazarus is raised from the dead four days after being dead. And they come to him. They come to the, the leaders and say, hey, people are believing in Jesus. Not because of just Jesus' words, but because of this guy Lazarus raised from the dead. You know what those Pharisees said? Not, wow, maybe we should rethink about who this guy is. They said, well, great, now we're going to have to kill him as well. Their hearts were hard. Guys, it's a miracle of miracles of miracles that we have submitted our life to God. If you are here today and you've been able to confess your sins, you've been able to surrender your life into the hands of God, you've given Christ the the leadership, the rulership of your life, and you've said, take the throne of my heart and be my Lord and God. Guys, we're going to see it more clearly from heaven's point of view, but that is a miracle of miracles and miracles because you are so stubborn and so rebellious and so self-centered, the fact that you can humble yourself and submit yourself to God is such a miracle. But nevertheless, they see this horrific view. These guys are sending up into heaven. And notice in verse 13... In that same hour, there was a great earthquake, 
and a tenth of the city fell. So we're talking 10.9 on the Richter scale here. Uh, a total geographical rearranging of the city of Jerusalem. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Probably 7,000 of the main religious demonic leaders uh, of note die. And the rest were afraid. And then they gave glory to God of heaven. Isn't this amazing? They're seeing three and a half years of miracles of tribulation. These guys prophesying in 44,000. A guy sent up in heaven. And then there's an earthquake. And then they get saved. Go figure. Probably one of the least supernatural things, an earthquake. And that's what convinces them to get saved. Anyway, in verse 14, that's the second woe is past. And there's one more to come. A third woe is coming quickly. And then in verse 15, then the seventh angel angel sounded. Then the seventh trumpet. That's what we've been waiting to get back to, the seventh trumpet blast. Remember in chapter 10, John was told to eat the whole word of God, the whole scroll. And he ate it all. It was sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And we talked about that. Some of the word of God, it's all necessary. But some of it's sweet and some of it's bitter. And we just went through a rather bittersweet bit of scripture. But now God gives us a little sweet here in these next few verses. The seventh trumpet blast and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So it's very possible that they're having a celebration because Elijah and probably Moses are in heaven, you know, and here they come in, this triumphal entry, and everybody begins to praise the Lord for using these guys so radically, and and they're having this celebration in heaven. And it's a clear marking point of three and a half years of the tribulation period. And maybe uh, in heaven we're not seeing the horrible tribulation period, and so uh, these two witnesses tell us about what took place. Or maybe maybe we've been observing the whole thing from heaven. We, you know, click on our TV and, and watch what's going on. I, I don't know. But either way, they clearly see that the Lord is getting ready to take control of the earth we're at the halfway mark, three and a half years from there, we'll be ascending with the Lord back to heaven to reestablish a thousand-year millennial reign upon the earth. But then there is these loud voices, and the kingdoms of this world are, are truly in your control, and you reign forever and ever. And in verse 16, And the 24 elders who sat down before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. We talked about this back in chapter 5. I believe this is referring to the believers, us. And they begin to say, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth, referring to all the idolatrous and immoral people. Then the temple of God was open in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquakes, and great hell. Notice in verse 16, the nations were angry because of these things. Jesus said plainly in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These guys were speaking the truth. They were divinely 
right from a pipe, right from God's olive tree, being filled with the Spirit, of the Spirit. Everything they said was perfectly from the throne of God. But yet the world did not receive the things of God. They hated them for it, just like they hate you. You know, the thing I really get out of this passage is looking at these witnesses because they are such an example for us. First of all, we see these guys had no fear because they knew they were indestructible. You know, the Bible tells us the fear of man is a snare. Jesus said in Matthew, do not fear those who can kill the body. God tells us we're not supposed to fear man, but to fear him, referring to God himself who has power over the body and the soul. We should only have one fear, and that's the fear of God and not the fear of man. Paul told Timothy to live godly in this life. If you live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Not because of your words, not because of your witnessing, just because you're the light coming into the mix of darkness, just because you're the salt being poured into the wound of this world. And men hate the light because they love their darkness. And the fact of the matter is, if you live a godly life, the world only loves its own. And you're not of this world. Just like these two witnesses were. The other thing I like is that these guys were being energized, anointed daily, straight from God, straight from heaven. In Isaiah 50, Jesus, leaving us the example, said, that's what I do. Morning by morning, the Father awakens me. Isaiah verse 40 Verse 4 and 5. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4 and 5. The Lord God awakens me morning by morning. He quickens my ear as a learner, as a disciple, so I can hear and learn and grow as a, as a believer. And then he gives me a word to speak to the weary in the day. God every day wants you to be a witness, like these guys were every day. They had a ministry to be fulfilled. And you don't have anything to fear either. God knows every hair upon your head. There's not one sparrow that falls to the ground that God doesn't know about. And how much of greater value than a sparrow are you? Your life is in the hands of God. Now, we shouldn't try to tempt the Lord like Satan tried to get Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. You're indestructible. Jump off the pinnacle. That's foolishness. That's tempting the Lord our God. I don't think these guys were tempting the Lord, but they also had no fear of man. I mean, what's worst case scenario? They kill us and what? We go to heaven. (laughs) To be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But so often, I think we try to cushion the blow of persecution against us. I don't want to stand up boldly at work because, you know, it's going to make things difficult. Hey, guys, stand up. Speak it out. How lovely are the feet of those who spread the good news. Go for it, guys. Don't hold back. In season, out of season, Paul told Timothy, endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In season, out of season, go for it. These guys went for it. Be in the spirit daily. Receive, grow in the Lord. Hear that word and then speak it out. And one day, when we go to heaven, we are going to be having that time of reward and rejoicing as he says there, And the servants of the prophets, they are going to receive their reward. Into verse 18, they're going to receive the servants and the prophets and all of the saints. 
and those who feared your name. Small or great. But on the other hand, we now come to the three and a half year mark. And what does God do in heaven is the real Ark of the Covenant. When Moses was commanded to build all the articles of the tabernacle, he said, do it exactly. Why? Because it's a replica of the one in heaven. And so the Ark of the Covenant that's missing now on this planet, there's the real Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And in heaven, God God goes into the temple and he opens that Ark of the Covenant. And there is this horrendous lightning and noises and thundering and earthquakes and great hell that's going to come to this planet. The wrath of God that's going to break upon this planet. And in this last three and a half years, the planet Earth is going to see a tribulation as never seen before, ever will see again. And so as we close this morning, the question comes back, are you ready? Are you ready for the rapture of the church? Are you ready to stand before God? Are you now being a faithful witness as we see these witnesses being? It's just an amazing thing when you you realize that so many of the things that we were scratching our heads about a few years ago, the mark of the beast, how can everybody have a mark on their back of the hand of their forehead to identify them? Now that's an easy technological feat, isn't it? How can the whole world, no matter where you're at, even out in the middle of some jungle somewhere, see what's going on in Jerusalem? That's a simple solution now, something that was almost impossible to imagine 10 years ago. The coming of the Lord, guys, is incredibly near. Are you ready? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word here today. And we do know it came today to some to wash them in the water of your word. And some who are giving themselves to carnalness and and swaying from the narrow road that leads to life have been encouraged today by your word. And send your word forth and heal them. Don't let it return void, but accomplish all it was sent out to do. And Lord, there's others here today that you've brought by the power of your spirit to yield themselves to you. They've been rebellious and living life in their own strength, in their own way, in their own desires. But today in your love, as a good shepherd, you've brought your sheep to this green pasture to feed because you want them to be saved. You want to write their name down in the book in heaven, the book of life. They could leave here with the guilt of their sin gone and to know that they're right with you forever. With all heads bowed this morning, First, I'd like to talk to that crowd that needs to give your life to Christ. Right now, you can do it. The Bible says God's rich to all who call upon his name. Cry out to the Lord now and say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me for my sinfulness. Lord, forgive me for doing things my will, my way, my desire, and not being submitted to you. Lord, I submit myself to you now. Take the throne of my life. Be my Lord and my God. From this day forward, it's your will, your ways. I submit myself totally to you. Secondly, I'd like to talk to those Christians that have been swaying. You've been taking your candlestick and hiding it under the bed. You've been trying not to appear like the Christian at school or at work or in the neighborhood. And God today is speaking to you. Stop sinning. Arise unto righteousness. There's some among you who have not the knowledge of God. 
to say today, Lord, I come and I want to be that person with those golden pipes coming straight into me divinely, filled with your oil of the Spirit, energized by your power. Lord, I want to be a witness. Take my life, Lord. My hands, my feet, my mouth, my all is yours. Whatever comes may come, but I want to be a witness, a light like a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. Take my life, God, into your hands. I'm yours. Use me as you will. However many days, whether I have 1,260 days left or two days left, only you know. But until I leave this earth, let me finish that work that you've called me to do. And Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Cause all of us to be enriched greatly by it. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, before you head out, find somebody you don't know, get their name, and one thing that you can pray for them throughout this week. If you need prayer for anything, come forward. We have elders and pastors here that would love to pray for you, whether it's for healing or just a word of encouragement, or whether you've received the Lord and you need a Bible, come forward. We want to encourage you today and get some prayer. God bless you. Encourage you to come back tonight, read Leviticus chapter 16 and be ready. And we'll have a time in the word and worship and a time of prayer tonight. God bless you all. Bye-bye.